0: This month, we're taking our first look at an old book called Your Aladdin's Lamp by Harlan Ware and someone who some of you might be familiar with, a gentleman by the name of Bill Hornaday. Bill Hornaday is a name synonymous with religious science and new thought. He was one of Ernest Holmes' most trusted friends and colleagues, and it's no surprise that this book is really something amazing to read. And so begins our tale, lesson from a Buddhist. Now, young Bill Hornaday was about as dedicated a Christian as any church could want. He writes, at this distance, he can be viewed with detachment. A tall young man, immature and narrow in his religious thinking, looking about him in distress at the poor heathen shuffling into the temples to pray to a God that never was. Obviously, they were all doomed unless some could be saved by an ardent Christian from Monterey Park, California. He would begin by learning the Chinese language, he decided. Then he could convey the good news in the heathen's own tongue. This is where my self-sabotage came in, he says. My instructor despaired of teaching me in the orthodox fashion. So it was arranged for me to live for a short time with a Chinese family in the hope that through daily association, I'd pick up what could not be gleaned from textbook and classroom. So eager young Bill came to the household to discover warmth and exquisite courtesy. And here he notes, they were kind, considerate, sensitive to others as well as to themselves, generous and loving like Christians. (laughs) It gradually dawned on him that their religion, whatever it was, was practiced 24 hours a day, every single day. There were idols placed throughout the house, and they were everywhere. There was, for example, a god of sleep, it was a wooden image with a serene, chubby face and eyes closed in slumber. And there was the god of happiness and joy, a round little man who appeared to be laughing joyfully, and which the Buddha we just spoke about cringed at. So, before long, he began asking questions. Once, when trying to understand the meaning of a religious ritual, he says, My host, who was Buddhist, asked, how Christianity was practiced. This was my glorious chance. I talked with ardor and quoted at length the commandments of Jesus and my church's dogma. He was gravely thoughtful, his host. Do you really love everybody? He asked, looking directly in my eyes. Do you really bless those who persecute you? Well, I try, I said stoutly and succumbed to a fit of coughing. Um, he had been concerned that morning because I had a symptoms of a cold, Bill says. You're not angry at anyone, the host asked. Sometimes emotional stress can cause a cold, is it not true? That too was a new idea to Bill, but 4,000 years old to the Chinese. The host suggested that he come along to a Buddhist service, but honestly believing that the wrath of God would be upon him, he declined. His host said, It is our duty to take note of how we feel within ourselves, about ourselves, and others. When this has been done properly, we find ourselves in perfect balance. I feel fine, I really do, came Bill's reply. Yet you are prejudiced, came the hosts. His tone was mild. You don't understand our belief and are not willing to let me explain. Bill saw the justice in this. Well, go ahead, then tell me about it. On the contrary, he smiled, I will let you tell me tell yourself. After they were seated on the floor by a shrine, he brought out two beautifully carved hand-sized blocks of ivory. The backs of the blocks were smooth, the inside exquisitely carved, presenting a landscape scene with human figures and tiny bridges and shrubbery. The insides of the blocks complemented each other, and when they were brought together, they fitted perfectly and he placed them on the floor in front of Bill. The first requirement is to be honest with oneself, he said. If you are prejudiced toward anyone, move them a few inches apart. After a bit of soul searching, Bill moved them. If you are afraid of any person, place, or thing, again, you must move them apart. Afraid? Afraid? There was menace everywhere in that strange land. Of course he was afraid, and so he moved them a little further apart. If you feel guilty over something that you've done in the past, move them again. Bill notes, In the world I'd lived in to this point, the path was straight and narrow, and almost everything enjoyable was wrong. I was fraught with guilt. I set them apart another few inches. If you are uncertain about your relationship with a power greater than yourself, move them once again. And once more, he moved the figures apart. This is good, said the host, you are honest. Now, take all of the thoughts you have used to separate the pieces and reverse them, for prejudice can be erased with love and understanding. Fear disappears as one grows in strength and wisdom. Guilt should not accompany a young man who means to do his best for all others. And the recognition of a power within greater than the small self is like a flower opening to the sun, the true beginning of the love of God. There, this is your religious service. When you have forgiven yourself and others, when you have recognized that all life is good, that that life is within you, then you can bring the blocks together in wholeness. You will feel better and life henceforth will be more meaningful. He says, it was a lesson that would be with me from then on. It was the first time that I had been called upon to do for myself the things I'd prayed that God would do for me. And he settled down to it with a furrowed brow. It was a struggle to bring those blocks together. Honestly, he'd had to work quite diligently to move past those limitations which had pulled them apart but he says in the end the heathen had turned the would-be missionary inside out he'd enlarged his view revealing the universality of the power within preparing him for his encounter with a remarkable philosopher who would become his friend and mentor and he notes The day I reluctantly left that Chinese family, my host spoke English for the first time and spoke it perfectly. He confessed that he was a graduate of a university in the U.S. You learned faster because you didn't lean on me, he explained. We have great resources within when we're forced to use them. I had been a very easy victim for a gentleman whose Buddhist views seemed more Christian than my own, Bill observed. And so he went on to live the life of the predictable American dream for several years after. He started a profitable business, married, bought a hilltop house right here in neighboring Altadena, and he lived quite comfortably until one day when a family member announced that she had been attending church in a theater where a man named Ernest Holmes presented a religious philosophy as if he knew for sure what he was talking about. Her instinct was sound. Ernest Holmes had worked out a philosophy that satisfied his ever-questioning mind. And could be illustrated on a blackboard and conveyed in eloquent lectures to those willing to hear. And here's the thing, it could be proved. So he attended his first lecture. He said, and I loved this first line, Ernest Holmes was a short man who walked tall. He had no reverence for ecclesiasticism or outmoded theology. He said that the power within was available to all, saint or sinner, without intercession by priest or pastor, without mediator. So when his words began to reach me, I was shocked. But all around me, people were taking notes. It was like a college lecture. And... Much of what he'd heard that day stayed with Bill in the following week. Dr. Holmes had said, Man is a manifestation of spirit, and for spirit to desire evil for him would be for it to desire evil for itself. All apparent evil is the result of ignorance and will disappear to the degree that it is no longer thought about or indulged in. Bill pondered this. His daily route to his business took him along streets largely beset with poverty. Were the tenement houses a manifestation of the mind, he wondered? Were they part of what Holmes had meant? It was a fresh concept for the one-time soul saver. What about that vacant-eyed man he'd glimpsed, sitting on a front step dejectedly? What if, what if he'd spent... The last evening at that lecture. Suppose in his search for understanding of the glorious universe all around him, he'd brought home a new and practical thought and suppose this morning he had awakened with new hope and he followed this notion down its path of potential impact on the man's life. He'd go into the city And look for work. And because he believed it to be, his search would lead him to be hired. And as he learned more about his job, in Ernest Holmes' words, ignorance would no longer be indulged in. And eventually, when his life had taken on a whole new meaning and comfort, would he realize that the poverty had only been a state of mind? Provocative. So he came back. And back again, week after week. And one day after the service, the two were finally introduced. And it was obvious that someone had already spoken to Holmes about him. Come and talk to me when you have time, Bill, Ernest said. They tell me you're a preacher. The word was said with an odd inflection. The half-taunting overtone belied the friendliness in his eyes. My training Included preaching, Bill responded stiffly, I'm not preaching now. Are you getting anything out of these lectures, said Ernest? I find them provocative, came his reply. That's good. I do too. There's a lot I say that I don't understand myself. It was pretty clear to me this morning, but sometimes it's too complex for anybody like me to understand. Bill thought he must be kidding. But I know better. I have been there, and many of us have had that experience, right? Take our Science of Mind study group, for example. We actually had to start recording the sessions for this very reason. But sometimes the discussion that we have is so profound, it is so big, and we all come together to form these bits of wisdom that it almost seems like it's too big to remember afterward, right? Does that sound right? And I'm not talking about what I say. I'm talking about everyone in that room. Every one of us has had that experience where we'll say something and stop and go, huh, that was good. Hence the recorder. It's really quite wonderful and it's addictive. When something like that happens to you, you find that you want to explore it and learn more and more as it flows through. But back to our story. And so... Bill and Ernest Holmes had exchanges nearly every Sunday thereafter, and one day he invited Bill to lunch. He said, Bill says, he did very well for himself indeed. No modern philosopher should be narrowly aware of the right side of the menu, he said. And he taught abundance on Sunday and believed his own life should manifest abundance. All the world's threadbare preachers and their threadbare offspring had the wrong idea. Life was joyous. The earth abounded. All was superlatively well. I hear you come from a family of ministers. Is that right, Bill? Three generations or so, Bill replied, quickly changing the subject. Will you tell me sometime how you arrived at your philosophy, Dr. Holmes? I'll tell you right now, in three words, he said, I stole it. It was a shock, and Ernest seemed pleased. You can't steal the truth, though, he amended. If the central idea of my philosophy is true, then it's yours. And his, he pointed to the next table, and hers to the next, and mine Truth existed before any of us came onto the scene. One's manner of expression can be trademarked. But what we are teaching at the Institute has been gleaned from the wisdom of ages, east and west. And if it's true, it belongs to anybody who can understand it. The rest of the lunch went on quite amicably. And as they went to part ways, Ernest turned to him and said, Bill... I think you ought to know that I have been treating. And remember, treating means praying. They're the same thing. I have been treating because I need a preacher. My Sunday service has been standing room only for so long that I had to start off one of our teachers in another theater. He's had a better offer in a church, and he's leaving I'll talk to the trustees about you. A preacher teaching science of mind could fill that theater. How many seats, asked Bill? 1,600. How large is the audience? Oh, it's not anywhere near what it should be, Ernest admitted. The man who is leaving is very able, one of our best, but he isn't a preacher, and that's what they seem to want. "'I'm finally convinced you can't educate some people away from preaching. "'They even want to sing hymns,' he said with distaste. "'He probed Bill with his bright blue eyes. "'Since I've been treating on this need for a preacher-teacher, "'it's only fair to tell you that the first time I saw you, "'something in me said, this could be that man.' "'Bill felt a slight chill.' I have only a vague idea of your philosophy. You're attending classes in the evening, aren't you? Well, yes, I am, and getting a lot out of it. And so he kept going and got a lot more out of it. And it was soon after that conversation that Bill Hornaday closed his business. Interesting fact, he made what he would refer to as educational toys, but specifically, he was responsible for ant castles, luxury ant farms. He used to lure kids into Sunday school with his ant farms. He would make one for an interested kid and then make another and another. So the Reverend Dr. Bill Hornaday was the ant farmer. And um, when he tried to argue his position against closing the business in this new venture of preacher-teacher. He said, I have ant catchers on the Mojave Desert, and then quickly realized you can't say ant catchers without sounding like tiny little cowboys at the Roundup. So Bill studied, and he learned, and most of all, he'd begun to feel like he was home again. Preaching was in his blood, but... Teaching from this philosophy it made him come alive. And then, the Saturday before his first appearance at the Belmont Theater in Los Angeles, Ernest stopped him. Uh, I didn't get around to talking to the trustees until just yesterday, he admitted sheepishly. They're not too enthusiastic about the Belmont, Bill. I wanted to warn you, we're on our own there. Some of the trustees feel that you're too new to the work and a minister better known to the metaphysical movement should be engaged. They question your ability to raise the money necessary to pay rent, salaries, and so forth. But that can't make any difference. No difference said Bill. There was only a small congregation in Belmont when I went to observe the existing service last Sunday, said Bill. Well, was it raining, said Ernest. No. The point is, Bill, we understand the law of abundance. You're going to have a golden chance to prove out the principle. Irritation crept into Bill's voice. I don't mind saying, sir, I'm very uneasy with this. Uneasy, are you? Well, frankly, yes. Here we are, just getting your overflow and the ones who don't want to drive that far because you're six miles away. And I'll note here, Ernest Holmes held his service in Beverly Hills in a theater just off of Wilshire. The Belmont, Bill Hornaday's location was on Vermont Avenue in L.A. Bill, Ernest interrupted, Sir, Do you think you can bear the consequences of the way you are thinking? He says, The remark entered my head somewhere between my eyes. I suspect my ears picked it up after it already been rattling around inside of my head for a moment. Could I bear the consequences of the way I was thinking? Well, the way I was thinking had been the manner of thought of the ardent young man in Monterey Park, the dedicated substitute minister whose thinking had sent him to China and back, into a fine house in Altadena and out of it, into business and out of it. No, I can't, Bill confessed. I'll reverse it. Then let's treat for the answer, Ernest replied, There are no obstructions in Bill's pathway, no hindrance to his endeavors in Belmont. Let our word be the law of elimination of hindrance. We behold the Belmont service as perfect action of truth and see that it is even now done, complete, and perfect. And so it is. And then Ernest added, That's good. It's done, Bill. Now, go and prove your principle. And Bill closes the story by saying, I started for the theater that Sunday very much aware of my father, the late Reverend W.H.D. Hornaday Sr., the Methodist circus rider. There was a cheerful greeting at the door. Then my footsteps echoed across the empty stage. Gladioli bristled in tall vases, I waited in the wings until 11 and then went out to the high-backed chair and saw the empty seats stretching away to the galleries. 112 out of 1,600 were filled. We had 1,486 empty seats. Prove the principle, Ernest had said. That's nothing more than room to expand, I told myself. And expand he did. The church that you're sitting in today is proof of that. Ethel Barnhart was a student of Ernest Holmes. Ernest himself attended the groundbreaking here. And right out there, he held the shovel right alongside Ethel Barnhart. And we have the pictures and typewritten prayer to prove it. And today there are churches of religious science and all of its many resulting incarnations all over the world. Now look around you. Look at those empty seats. Those empty seats are made of the very stuff you are. So are they really empty? that's perhaps too big a question for us to debate today but its answer is nothing less than truth this room right here is full to overflowing with divine potential if you were at that special membership meeting a couple of weeks ago you no doubt heard the handful of voices despairing at the lack of attendance, calling for someone established to draw people back into our space, for someone to bring their followers along and revitalize this church. And you heard others who argued that we are on our way to something wonderful just the way we're going right now. And I sat here in the front, not knowing what the outcome of the meeting would be and not having any particular opinion Of how it should go. I sat here trusting God to decide. I sat here in love and peace. Quite content with whatever would come. And I was honestly very surprised when it was announced. That I would be the new senior minister. My brain still kind of startles a little. When that idea pops back in. Because the thing is. No matter how that meeting would have gone. I was still going to be here doing exactly the same things that I do already, and holding the same bright vision I always have since I was a little child here. And here's where I tell you the most important part of this whole thing. I don't matter. I don't matter to the success or failure of this place any more than any one of you do. I alone will not be the reason for either outcome. The future of this place rests in all of our hands. In equal measure. In the vision and intention all of us hold for it. And when I look out into this sanctuary, I don't see a handful of loyal members stubbornly and diligently staying the course, come what may. I see faith in action. Vibrant and humming, magnetizing faith in action. Look at each other and see it with me. We are together. And we are the reason that this place is beginning to buzz with vitality. We, together, are the reason for the surge of momentum thrusting underneath our feet. We, together, are the authors of its future, its life and movement toward a growth so rapid, so profound and abundant, it is we who will be seeking others to teach at our overflow theaters when the standing room can hold no more. I can feel it in the very air. As I walk these grounds, I mean that. Turn within and feel it with me now. As we reimagine Ernest Holmes' words from a moment ago There are no obstructions in our pathway, no hindrance to our endeavors here at the Santa Anita Church. Let our word be the law of elimination of hindrance and the invitation of vitality and growth. We behold each Santa Anita church service and activity as a vibrant, vigorous, and magnetic action of truth and see that it is even now done, complete, and perfect. And so it is.